Well, we're going we're gonna to have some fun tonight. We're going to have a little bit of a Thanksgiving history lesson, and then we're going to get into uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll finish on time, I assure you. Um, but I wanted to share with you uh, in relation to the Thanksgiving uh, portion, um, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm going to pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on tonight, and God, we are thankful And this has been a couple of weeks where it's hard to find thanks, but Lord, we do. And I can think of so many ways in which you've used this this tragedy, and I I think that's too small of a word. And even in the midst of it, Lord, the, the amazing things that you've accomplished in and through this, and we're mindful of the parents who've lost their children, and and uh, Mrs. Adler lost her husband, and and God, just as the community's reeling and struggling, and Everybody has questions as to why. Tonight, Lord, we say what? What is it that you want us to learn from this? What is it that you're showing us? Um, and, and what is our response to be in relation to all of it? And God, as we prepare to step into Thanksgiving tomorrow and we take a look at this passage of scripture that just kind of sums it all up, I pray that you'd give us insight into how to apply this by your spirit. And so we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, verse 16. It says, "In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you." So it says, "In everything give thanks." And the word "everything" in the Greek means um, everything." And I, I find that a difficult verse. Um, I've met with a number of the parents. Um, as they're preparing their memorial services for their children. It doesn't seem right that parents outlive their children. Um, Saw Mrs. Adler, who lost her husband, and um, also met, I think it's Dylan, um, Mr. Adler's son, at the memorial service for Justin Meek. And um, their service is on the 8th in the morning, and then we've got um, Blake and Jake's memorial service on the 8th in the afternoon. Uh, we've got another one where we're going to go down to San Diego for Justin. He had his memorial service at COU, but they're doing another one at Grand Memorial uh, Presbyterian Church because Captain Meek uh, was involved in the Navy SEALs. He was prepared to retire on the 10th, uh, but he postponed his retirement because of his son's murder. And um, and it's been uh, just an awful week. Um, I was invited by a member of the congregation. Any of you were hugging me, probably wondered why I smell like cologne and cigar smoke. Uh, I, was, I was invited to go to the Old Oak Cigar uh, place to sit down. And while I was there, it's interesting the folks you run into. And while I was seated there, um, two government officials came in, one um, a council member and the other um, our assembly member. And they were there getting a gift, and uh, I was with a member of the congregation and had a, an interesting conversation because um, both of these individuals have attended uh, all the memorial services as the city officials have tried to attend all that we've been invited to. Some have been private. And th- we've witnessed uh, some sermons that were really good, some sermons that were a little belabored, and some sermons that were... Um, kind of heavy-handed, others that were a little light, some that were obscure and strange, and, and it was just this, um, a, a myriad of voices throughout each of these memorial services, and um, I walked out of uh, the service yesterday for Noel 
and uh, another city official came up to me and asked me questions in contrast between one lady who got up and spoke about hope and then the pastor who spoke about hope and both seemed to be conflicting in their approach to what hope is. And there was confusion in this council member and, and they asked me these questions and I began to lay out the, the biblical concept and this idea of a physical world and a metaphysical world and how uh, people tend to use metaphysical terms in a physical world and, and talk about good and evil even though they don't believe in a God or absolutes or anything along those lines. And, and I, I started to describe to them uh, how God can work all things together for good because I keep hearing this verse in, in each of the memorial services that we've attended, Romans 8.28, and how can God work something good out of something so evil and, so, and something so awful. And it's opened up opportunity after opportunity as it did today in the Old Oak Cigar Place. And the last place you'd imagine that it'd be an opportunity to minister. And there, uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate the, the understanding. Uh, and, and, as, and as I was sharing with them um, and, and just basically saying, look, uh, one of the, the struggles in Christendom is we always have the answer before the question's ever asked. And it's caused Christendom to become very uneducated because we say Jesus is the answer. Well, in one sense that's true, but the question hasn't been asked. And we don't tend to exercise our mind and go deeper and to give, uh, be prepared in season, out of season, to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. The simplicity is Jesus is the answer, but, but folks are looking for something deeper to hold on to because they don't know all the theology and all the background of the simplicity of what you're stating and they're looking for answers that they can hold on to. And one of the things that I shared was the simple fact that if God wants to remove evil from the earth, he needs to remove the source of that, that evil, and that's people. But he allows us to exist in order to come to a saving knowledge and then to be the preservative on an earth that has gone haywire. And uh, he's given every man this opportunity to respond to him. And in a fallen world, it's the sense that we are the moral preservative. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And, and, and we're to have that effect. And so when God says in First Thessalonians 5 to give thanks in everything, for this is a will of God in Christ Jesus for you, as Christians, we have to have a theology that's deeper than saying Jesus is the answer. Please understand, I'm not dismissing that. I'm not dismissing that. I'm saying folks need to go deeper in relation to that, explaining why Jesus is the answer. Um, and, and when you come to this place where, you know, you, you, you have folks pondering questions, how is it possible that any good can come of this? Well, one of the things that I've shared with some of the parents is this idea that I didn't know any of them until their children were killed, murdered. And, and having learned of their lives and seeing this tapestry of our community, one of the things I've noticed is that this community is closer and tighter than it's ever been. Doors have opened for the opportunity to minister in places that would never have occurred, and people are finding strength in the midst of it. And I'm watching as family members who have probably hugged 10,000 necks um, are continuing to pour themselves out in the midst of their pain to love on others. And their, their declaration, one in particular, uh, Cody's dad, he just said, you know, we went to church, I haven't had any sleep, I've been hitting golf balls to try to get my mind off it, but where I find the most strength is when I'm hugging people and ministering to them in the midst of my pain, it's softening what I'm dealing with because I'm seeing that people are looking to me for that opportunity and I'm pouring into their lives. I, I've marveled at, at the strength that these family members, and, and I haven't met all of them, but the ones that I have met, all, all of those 
without exception, have had this unbelievable ability to minister to folks in the midst of their pain. And we have to look and say, you know, what is it that God wants us to see in all this in a fallen world? And, and you have two conflicting worldviews. One is this idea of a moving goalpost that, that morality is subjective and, and there are no moral absolutes. And, and in that world, as I've said earlier, the foundations keep getting hit and it's at those times that people come to listen. And so as all of us in the, the civic community are traveling from one message to the next and we're watching all these different sermons, um, the, the questions are arising and everyone is coming into contact with their mortality. As I've often said, when I officiate a wedding, no one ever listens to me, including the bride and groom, because they're so enraptured with each other and they're like, all they hear from me is But in a, in a memorial service or a funeral service, everybody's listening. And the ones that pretend that they're not listening are the ones that are really listening. I've, I've come to find that because they're usually the ones later that'll come up to you at a quiet opportunity at the reception and ask you questions. And you have this opportunity to speak into their lives. Um, and and all, of, all of us in the community have come face to face with our foundations being hit. And we have to look and say, is it holding? Because if it was our child, could we give thanks? Could we find strength and hope in the midst of it? And, and as I pondered all these things, one of the fascinating aspects about what we're celebrating tomorrow uh, in the history of the United States of America, and it's been going on now for about 400 years, is uh, Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving started in Plymouth when the pilgrims came over. They were blown off course. They were supposed to land in Virginia. They landed 200 miles away in Massachusetts uh, they did the Mayflower Compact. They went through the first winter. And uh, of the 100 people that landed on shore, uh, by the end of the winter and by the end of the first year, only 50 were living. Four of them were women. That right there, how do you give thanks? I mean, I <laughs> thought you'd find humor in that. I, well, it gets worse for the women. There were four remaining. So you had, you had uh, 46 men, four women. And then they invited, um, and, and you guys heard the story about Squanto, that they're greeted by this Indian who had been enslaved and sent to Europe, um, who had come to Christ because um, monks had, had purchased him, educated him, brought him to Christ, got him back to England, where he served in a household where he could find another route back because getting a ship to the new world would be like trying to get on a space shuttle. They just didn't have that many launching and uh, he ends up being, being able to come back over to the new world. When he gets back to his village, he finds out that the entire village has been wiped out by uh, a European disease. He connects with, um, uh, I, I can't, it starts with the W, Wanapago uh, Indians. I'll, I'll give you the translation or the, na- the pronunciation momentarily when I get to it. And, and he, he, he learns their dialect. They speak a different language, but he speaks the king's English. He sees these settlers come. They, they barely make it through the first uh, winter. 50 of them are remaining. He teaches them how to grow crops accordingly. He teaches them how to catch eels. He teaches them how to fish. And how you take the fish, you put the seed of corn in with the fish so it creates a fertilizer. Then it creates um, the crop. And then they were able to harvest. He teaches them how to hunt. 
And uh, William Bradford, the governor, was so impressed that in his writings, he says that he was a complete, clear instrument of God to save us. And we, we've lost this whole concept of Squanto, and, and, and here is a man that lost everything, yet he was used, in a sense, to create what would become the greatest nation on the face of the earth because these 50 remaining uh, pilgrims were able to establish and set up this um, Mayflower Compact, which would be dedicated to the prop- propagation of the Christian gospel. And, and all of a sudden, this establishes itself uh, on, on, uh, on the American soil. Well, in that first winter, uh, 50 remaining, four women, they invite 90 Indians to come. So you have 140 people to be fed. Who's cooking the meal? So I don't want anyone complaining about the Thanksgiving meal. They had to cook for 140 people and there were four women. Now, we don't know necessarily they were the ones that did that, uh, but, but more than likely that was the case. And so I wanted to share with you, most people think that the very first Thanksgiving was um, when, when the pilgrims landed. And actually, um, it was in the sense that they followed the biblical concept of the Feast of Tabernacles. They were very biblically minded, and as we've studied, they had the uh, Geneva Bible with all the commentary on civil government and, and they had established the Mayflower Compact based on that, and that's where we got civil government. And every other nation on the face of the earth was an oligarchy, whether it was a monarchy or whatever you have. This idea of, of individual government and accountability before God, they had downloaded, in a sense, the, the Ten Commandments app. So that the first five commandments were the relationship with God. The second five were the relationship with each other. And all of them dwelt together. Because if you look in the Old Testament when you had all the Jews wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, they never had a standing army. They never had a police force. Uh, they, 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 they had representative form of government because they said appoint them over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. That's where you had federal, state, county, local government. And they survived for 40 years without a police force. Well, when the pilgrims and these reformationists started to look at scripture, they realized that a monarchy was not God's intention. As you read what Samuel said uh, in relation to when they wanted, Israel wanted a king, God warned them, you don't want a king. These are the bad things that are going to happen. But God was content to work with the people regardless of the form of government. Well, when the Reformation hits Europe and then comes across the Atlantic, they continue with this idea of self-governance. And There had been a thanksgiving prior to the arrival of the pilgrims, and that happened in St. Augustine, Florida in 1565 um, when uh, when you had uh, the Spaniards come in and they they celebrated on September 8th of of uh, 1565. So they did have a moment of thanksgiving, but it wasn't along the lines of what we're familiar with uh, where it was dedicated to the scriptures themselves and this idea of a feast of tabernacles. The pilgrims settled and started to examine this idea of giving thanks to God, even after having lost 50% of, of, of their population. They had to look and say, how do we give thanks to God when every one of us has lost a family member? How do we give thanks to God when we have gone through one of the most decimating winters uh, we've ever known? Many of them died on board ship. And now there's four women remaining, and they're, they're holding on barely. And then all of a sudden, they're greeted by Squanto and this amazing gift of God. 
So in the fall of 1621, um, they're coming in and the harvest has been bountiful. And, and as uh, they've sent out uh, a group of four for hunting, they filled their bags, they came back with them, they had gotten the eels and they've gotten cod, uh, they, they put together and they invited all of the, the Indians that they had befriended through Squanto, and they set up this meal, uh, 90, 90 native people from the Wampanoag, Panoag, Wampanoag, there it is, Wampanoag tribe, uh, and they gave thanks, and, and by the way, these Indians were monotheistic, they believed in a creator, they just didn't know the creator um, in, in relation, but they, they had no problem giving thanks to God, and they partnered together, and they modeled this feast after the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, and this was, um, this is a, um, a, a quote here, it says, they began now to gather in in the small harvest they had and to fit up their houses and dwellings um, again against winter. Being all well recovered in health and strength and had all things in good plenty for as some were uh, thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish of which they took good store of which every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want and now began to come into store of fowl as winter approached, of which the place did abound when they came first, but afterward decreased by degrees. And besides waterfowl, there was a great store of wild turkeys, of which they took many, besides venison. Uh, besides, they had about a peck a meal a week to a person, uh, or now since harvest. Indian corn to that proportion, which made many afterwards write so largely uh, of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not. Uh, feigned but true reports and then Bradford's account identifies their gratitude for the good harvest after a most difficult winter and he pointed out and this is one of the the accounts that says our harvest being gotten in our governor sent for sent four men on fouling uh, that so we might after a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors um they four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help besides, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest, their greatest king, uh, Massasoit, which some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although... It be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. And um, we don't know the original date of the Thanksgiving. Many believe it was in the, the ending part of October having to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. But they had competitive games for those three days. One game in particular they did not participate in was football. Um, thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, all the dishes were wooden. The children served the adults. Just thought I'd throw that out there. There were only four adult pilgrim women alive. Uh, they ate cod, sea bass, fowl, ducks, geese, and swan. Wild turkeys were also consumed. Um, and then there was even a legend, and it hasn't been proven, that uh, popcorn was first introduced by one of the Indians, but this can't be proven. And then there was a poem that was written that embraced this concept of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
We had gathered in our harvest and stored the yellow grain, for God had sent the sunshine and sent the plenteous rain. Our barley land and corn land had yielded up their store, and the fear and dread of famine oppressed our homes no more. As the chosen tribes of Israel in the uh, far years of old, when the summer fruits are garnered and before the winter's cold, kept their festal week with gladness, with songs and choral lays, so we kept our first Thanksgiving in the hazy autumn days. They really followed this concept of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was fascinating. Now, the very first national Thanksgiving, uh, many years passed, and, and they would give thanks through the Revolutionary War. One in particular was in 1777 uh, by the Continental Congress to thank God for the victory of the Battle of Saratoga. And uh, Sam Adams wrote this. He said, For as much as it is indispensable duty of all men to adore the superintending providence of Almighty God, to acknowledge with gratitude their obligations to him for benefits received, together with penitent confession of their sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor and their humble and earnest supplications that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance. It is therefore recommended to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December next, for solemn thanksgiving and praise, that with one heart and one voice the good people may express the grateful feeling of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor, acknowledging with gratitude their obligations to him for the benefits received to prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consisteth in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. And then the Continental Congress issued the annual Thanksgiving proclamation each year through 1784 when the war was finally over. And they had continued to seek God in prayer. And there's a whole other aspect that I don't have time to share about Benjamin Franklin. He's the only one who ever had a signature on the three major documents, the Paris Peace Treaty, uh, the uh, Declaration of Independence, and the the U.S. Constitution. And he was the one when they were trying to put the Constitution together in 1787 where they couldn't come to terms because you had small states, large states. They didn't know what to do. And he had called for three days of fasting and prayer. He gave this eloquent presentation. When they reconvened, that's when they came up with this bicameral legislature. It was one of the most brilliant acts of, of, of government ever designed. And it, and it saved the nation in a sense. And then they moved forward from there. Uh, the Continental Congress issued annual Thanksgiving proclamations, as I said, through every year through 1784 until the war ended. In the first session of the Congress under the new Constitution, 1787, a resolution was given to President George Washington on September 25th, 1789, indicating the will of Congress to wait upon the President of the United States to request that he would recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to observe uh, by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. He not only agreed, but it was his first official act of his administration when he wrote these words. He says, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. His very first official act as President of the United States, this is what he wrote. Okay, pay attention. I know it's Wednesday and you're thinking turkey, but pay attention. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits and humbly implore his protection and favor, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent 
author of all good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and the manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence in the course and conclusion of the late war, that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually to render our national government a blessing to all people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional law. And this is a man that, um, you know, you you think of George Washington and, and after they had had the first victory over Boston Harbor, and I'd shared the story with you, um, and of Henry Knox, who was a bookseller in Boston and helped with the artillery, bringing it from Fort Ticonderoga, putting it up on, on Dorchester Heights and stopping the British and having the first victory there in the early spring, just as the, the snows were, were melting um, and the British were ready to take Dorchester Heights because the Continental Army didn't have any armament or artillery. And Henry Knox does this amazing engineering feat that has never been equaled bringing the armament all the way from Fort Ticonderoga. It was complete fog over Boston Harbor, but at the top of, of Dorchester Heights, it was a completely moon, full moonlit night. They built the, the parapets and the armament, and they started to shell Boston. They had a victory. Everyone cheered. It takes us into the summer of 1776, where they signed the Declaration of Independence. Everyone cheers. They say, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. They put it all on the line. They lay their names on there. And then following the signing of the Declaration of independence the continental army loses battle after battle after battle after battle after battle after battle finally they're they're waylaid on manhattan the british have surrounded manhattan uh the 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 battleships are arrayed uh washington loses all of his armament stores as the british have taken them he's going to lose the entirety of the continental army they're they they quietly go across uh, uh the east river uh, they have to put padding on their oars, and they, they're able to get off of Manhattan, cross the, the East River. They get up to Valley Forge just in the winter. Uh, they, they have very little armament left. They have very little ammunition left, and they're going into a brutal winter. And in that brutal winter of 1776, a third of them are dying of dysentery. A third of them don't have boots. They have to wrap their feet in burlap sacks. And, and for all intents and purposes, this experiment, liberty is over. And, and what you've enjoyed here in this nation uh, for over 240 years wouldn't have existed. One in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War, and, and all that's left is right up there in Valley Forge, and they're freezing to death in one of the worst winters on the eastern seaboard. And as this winter is bearing in, one of the things that Washington realizes is January 1st, all the conscriptions are up, and there will be no more soldiers remaining in the Continental Army. And we have, we, in stupidity, we have taken on a battle Uh, with the greatest empire in the history of the world that had just defeated the second greatest empire, France. And and they are getting, the, 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 the British are mopping the floor with the American forces, the Continental Army. It's over. And that's when Thomas Paine, who is an atheist, who ended up in a prison in France following the war that they brought out and were able to get him pardoned and he died. But he was a man that hated oligarchies and he, he was... He would be the equivalent of a, 
libertarian, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to describe an Ayn Rand follower. Uh, he, he was just livid and he had written the American crisis. These are the times that try men's souls, a summer soldier and the sunshine patriot when the siege and shrink from the duty of their country, but those who defend it now. And he wrote this most remarkable piece and he said, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered that which we receive too easily we esteem too lightly and he's he's inspiring what's left of this movement to to contend with this monarchy that has its boot on the neck of every human being on the face of the earth and the declaration of independence said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and it says when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people this was a declaration for all the world not just americans and he's writing this piece, and Washington's so moved by it that he has it copied and handed out to every remaining soldier. And as they read this, they're inspired. And on December 24, 1776, absolutely exhausted, they take the remaining armament and the stores that they have, and they march the 11 miles to Trenton, knowing that the Hessians are, are, are there. The British are so convinced of the victory that they have left that, that portion to the Hessians, which were contracted troops. Washington crosses the Delaware, freezing cold, he has two companies that are supposed to descend on the Hessians. As, as the delay is happening, the armament is slow to get there, crossing the frozen Delaware. Washington finally just says, we can't wait for the other division, let's attack. And the sun is already up, but they had been drinking all night long. They were completely inebriated. They had massive hangovers. Washington and his forces come in and, uh, and they attack the Hessians in Trenton. Uh, an overwhelming victory that resonates all the way across the Atlantic. The, the French are inspired by it. They begin to enter the war. The conscriptions increase, and this experiment in liberty has a, a brand new birth. And as we are now sitting here 240-plus years later, it was because of that battle that turned the tide of the war at the conclusion of what was supposed to be one of the most amazing accomplishments, but they suffered. They suffered deeply. And giving thanks to God was something that that Washington himself understood because this is a man that served the British forces and there were Indians that, that fought with the French that, that point blank, and you can read this. I'm not making this up. They're not gonna teach it in your, your, your public schools, but it's, it is a legitimate discourse in history. These Indians had point blank shot multiple times on Washington as he's up on this steed riding and he's six foot two, which was hugantic in that day and age. He was a target that you couldn't miss and bullets would just swing by and pass through. His uniform had bullets. It was almost as though the providence and the hand of God was over him. And they would come and say, who is this man? We tried to kill him on multiple occasions and we couldn't. And here God had preserved him for this, this movement. Why God does one thing and he doesn't do another, I'll tell you what, you take it up with him. Why he picks one person, he doesn't pick another, you take it up with him. But I do know this, and I've experienced it for 54 years of my life, what he does, he does for good. And he's a God of goodness. Washington of all, when his very first act as President of the United States is to declare a day of thanksgiving to God. Having lost dear friends, having lost family members, having lost, this is a man that understood, give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Amazingly, no no national proclamation would take place again in the United States until the Civil War. And here the, the United States would be embattled. William Lloyd Garrison would start this abolitionist movement where you had William Wilberforce end slavery in the British Empire um, 30 years before America would do it. 
He did it without a shot being fired, did it civil, through the, the civil process, and, and ended slavery in the British Empire. The Americans would hold on to it. We would design the U.S. Constitution, they called it the, the three-fifths clause, where they wanted to slowly remove slavery from the warp and the woof of the fabric of the country by, by moving it out legislatively. And what they said in the three-fifths clause was not to deny uh, someone based on the color of their skin being less human, but to deny the ability for slave owners to say that their slaves would be considered part of the population for representation in the lower house of the Congress. They didn't want them to have that ability. And so they didn't demean humanity. They did it to remove the power of the slave owners. And people say, well, why didn't you? They had to hold this together, 13 colonies. It's like somebody coming into an emergency room. They're bleeding out and they're not breathing, but they have a huge cancer on their neck. You're going to bypass the cancer and you're going to stop the bleeding and restore the breathing. They had to deal with the most important thing first and then to deal with the cancer later. And they did that. And that was the entire purpose of it. And so as they started to process this, it ended up through a series of events, and I don't have time to discuss it, but when, when Jackson got into office and he stacked the Supreme Court, and then it got to a place where everyone realized there's no way to end slavery because these southern states have established it, that they are going to fight and bypass everything that our founders established, then war broke out. Lincoln, when he was elected, um, and, and, and the Republican Party started with Gosh, I, I've forgotten the number. I think it's 18 people in a congregational church in, in Ripon, Wisconsin. And, and they gathered for the sole purpose of abolishing slavery. That was it. And by the way, the very first senators, black senators and, and congress members in the United States were all Republicans. Just do your homework. You, you can, you know. And, and, as, and as they established this to, to abolish slavery, the Democratic Republican Party and the Whigs, and they'd all dispersed and now you had Democrats, you had Republicans, this brand new party, and and it was laughable. And this was 1854 when they uh, established the Republican Party in this congregational church. And by 1860, they have an influx in the House and the Senate. They have a number of folks that had come out of the Whig Party and they were running in the Republican ticket. They were all abolitionists. And the one who won was a, a man who had had one term of office as a freshman Congress member who had lost almost every election he'd ever been in, and that was Abraham Lincoln. And he is ushered to the highest office in the land. And, and by the time before he was ever sworn into office, Seven states seceded from the Union. He had to come into Washington under secrecy because there were so many assassination attempts. And they say that he dressed like a woman to come into Washington. That hasn't been confirmed. But I'll tell you what, if I was him, I probably would have. All right? And, and, and as this occurs, he begins to address this issue of slavery. He does... He... he he fights so vehemently on behalf of this, and, and Frederick Douglass was the first black man invited into the White House, not as a slave or a servant, but as a human being. And he said to him at the conclusion of his first term in office, as, as the, the Union was getting decimated by the Southern forces, he said to Frederick Douglass, I need you to get south of the Mason-Dixon line and get every black north of the Mason-Dixon line because when McClellan wins, he was a Democrat, when McClellan wins, he's going to seal the border and everyone who's south is going to remain a slave and everyone who's north is going to remain free. And Frederick Douglass was so moved by him. 
And it was Elizabeth Keckley who was the, the attendant to the president. She was mulatto. She was half white, half black. She would always observe over his shoulder in, in the office of the presidency, and he would always be reading his Bible. And uh, scholars believe, as do a number of others, that he had come to Christ in the midst of his time in office, and many believe that it happened after his, his declaration of the Gettysburg Address. And when you see the change in his first inaugural address and his second inaugural address, there's no, no president in the history of the United States who's used more scripture than Abraham Lincoln himself. Lincoln's battle with God. He was an atheist early in his life. William Herndon pointed that out. But as you watch, he had this amazing progressive movement. He was never baptized formally into a church, but he would contend for scriptures unlike any. You read some of his commentaries and they're better than any preacher I've ever heard in my whole life. And so... In the midst of this misery in the Gettysburg Address, and when he gave the Gettysburg Address, they didn't even want him to come. They didn't even want him to come to Gettysburg for the dedication of the battlefield. Um, who was the keynote speaker? It's slipping my mind. I'm sorry? No. Edward Everett, thank you. Boom. You were close. And for that, you get nothing. Yep, yeah, uh, Edward Everett was, and, and he, he, was, he spoke for over an hour. Lincoln got up and read the Gettysburg Address. It took four minutes. And while he was giving the Gettysburg Address, um, the rains had been so heavy that the, the ground sunk and, and body parts were sticking out of the ground and the stench of death that the women there had to have perfume and, and handkerchiefs over their, their nose because the smell of death was everywhere. And, and here, thousands of dead. And he's giving this, this, this Gettysburg Address. And, and it, it, it's one of the most amazing documents ever written in the English language. Peruse it, take a look at it, see it. It was fascinating. And as he concludes, there wasn't even enough time to take his picture all they have is a picture of his stovepipe hat coming down from the dais, and that's all they had. And it was there that it was declared that he had come to Christ walking in the midst of the grave of Gettysburg, as historians declare. The Federalists point this out. And it was there that he declared on November 26, 1863, that America would give a day of thanksgiving. Imagine that. A day of thanksgiving when you've lost tens of thousands of your people. 650,000 people would die in a field of battle to remove slavery from the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country. And he gives this proclamation uh, fit more closely to giving God thanks for the harvest in the midst of turmoil of the Civil War. It's been hailed as a true origin of our present Thanksgiving Day, and, and this is how it began. This is his proclamation. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insens insensible to the ever watchful providence of Almighty God." Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. 
The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements and the mines as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. No human counsel hath devised nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the most high God who while dealing with us in anger of our sins hath nevertheless remembered mercy It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings that they do also with humble penitence for our national uh, perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. And for 75 years following, the annual Thanksgiving days were proclaimed by every president, with the exception of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1939. He moved Thanksgiving one week earlier than the last in November out of pressure from merchants who wanted more time for Christmas. (laughs) Congress, however, in 1941, disagreed moving it back permanently, setting the fourth Thursday in November as a national day of Thanksgiving. That, uh, with this final reading, will conclude my history lesson and give us 32 minutes to get through the passage of Scripture. This is from our current president, Donald Trump. On Thanksgiving Day, we recall the courageous and inspiring journey of the pilgrims who nearly four centuries ago, and by the way, it used to be that every pulpit in America would read the Thanksgiving proclamation of every president. So if this is offensive, it's tradition, one that we practice here. On Thanksgiving Day, we recall the courageous and inspiring journey of the pilgrims who nearly four centuries ago ventured across the vast ocean to flee religious persecution and establish a home in the new world. They faced illness, harsh conditions, and uncertainty, and they trusted in God for a brighter future. The more than 100 pilgrims who arrived at Plymouth, Massachusetts on the Mayflower instilled in our nation a strong faith in God that continues to be the beacon of hope to all Americans. Thanksgiving Day is a time to pause and to reflect, and with family and friends, on our heritage and the sacrifices of our forebearers who secured the blessings of liberty for an independent, free, and united country. After surviving a frigid winter and achieving their first successful harvest in 1621, the pilgrims set aside three days to feast and give thanks for God's abundant mercy and blessings. Members of the Wampanoag tribe who had taught the pilgrims how to farm in New England and helped them adjust and thrive in that new land shared in the bounty and celebration. In recognition of that historic event, President George Washington in 1789 issued a proclamation declaring the first national day of Thanksgiving. He called upon the people of the United States to unite in rendering unto God our sincere and humble gratitude for his care and protection of the people of this country and the favorable interpositions of his providence. President Abraham Lincoln revived 
this tradition as our fractured nation endured the horrors of the Civil War ever since we have set aside this day to give special thanks to God for the many blessings, gifts, and love he has bestowed on us and our country. This Thanksgiving as we gather in places of worship around tables surrounded by loved ones and I'm mindful of the families that will have an empty seat In humble gratitude for the bountiful gifts we have received, let us keep in close memory our fellow Americans who have faced hardship and tragedy this year. In the spirit of generosity and compassion, let us joyfully reach out in word and deed and share our time and resources throughout our communities. Let us also find ways to give to the less fortunate, whether it be in the form of sharing a hearty meal, extending a helping hand, or providing words of encouragement. We are especially reminded on Thanksgiving of how the virtue of gratitude enables us to recognize even in adverse situations the love of God in every person, every creature, and throughout nature. Let us be mindful of the reasons we are grateful for our lives, for those around us, and for our communities. We also commit to treating all with charity and mutual respect, spreading the spirit of thanksgiving throughout our country and across the world. Today we particularly acknowledge the sacrifices of our service members, law enforcement personnel, and first responders who selflessly serve and protect our nation. This Thanksgiving, more than 200,000 brave American patriots will spend the holiday season overseas away from their loved ones. Because of the men and women in uniform who volunteer to defend our liberty, we are able to enjoy the splendor of the American life. We pray for their safety and for their families who await their return. Now, therefore, I, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim Thursday, November 22nd, 2018, as a national day of thanksgiving. I encourage all Americans to gather in homes and places of worship to offer a prayer of thanks to God for our many blessings and witness hereof or whereof I have hereunto set my hand this 20th day of November in the year of our Lord, 2018, and of the independence of the United States of America, 243rd, Donald J. Trump. Let's give thanks to the Lord. God, we stop and we are mindful that we are to give thanks in everything for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we do stop and we give thanks. How you can use something like a civil war, a war of independence, a tragedy in the Conejo, all these things together for good that you would bring about a greater good. And God, in a fallen world that doesn't make much sense, it's wonderful to trust in a God who does. And I pray, Lord, by your spirit that you would bring upon this community, upon this county, this state, this nation, and through the world, a move of your spirit that would open our eyes to the goodness of the God that holds the heavens in the span of his hand, that longs to impart your spirit into every human heart, that we would live in such a way as to honor those who have been created in the image of God. Lord, we pray that there would be a revival and a renewal and that our eyes would be open to a God who doesn't work to bring us pain, but comes to set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so God, thank you. Bless your people, and we're grateful, God, for all the blessings. And we stop now in the midst of this to say thank you. We think of the 10 lepers that were healed and only one came back to say thank you. Lord, All of us tonight gather in this place of worship in this nation that allows us to freely gather and we say to you, thank you. Thank you for being such a good father and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, if you turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll get through this study in 28 minutes. I promise. You don't seem convinced of that. So as, as we've undertaken this study of 1 Corinthians, uh, I stopped for a moment to talk about the third person of the Trinity two weeks ago, and then I took time to share with you this idea of this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I also shared on Sunday morning, which was I was grateful for because it took us into the, the worst week I've ever experienced in the history of our community, and it was one that really sustained me and blessed me through that, and I pray it did for you as well. But it all began when we were going through the study of 1 Corinthians and we came to verses 1 through 3 that says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. Why would Paul say that? Because most people are ignorant of the spiritual gifts. Uh, and we think of the Holy Spirit as something freaky and weird. It's, he's anything but that. And he's not a force. We've learned that. He's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. He loves. He can be lied to. Uh, that we, we've, we've gone through this. He's a person. He's not a power or a force. He's a person. We use personal pronouns to describe him through the scriptures. And when anyone ever says, have you received it? Meaning, it what? Have you received him? That's a whole different story. Personal pronouns. This is a person. I don't want you to be ignorant, Paul says. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is a Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We've covered that. It doesn't mean that somebody who... who can utter these words, Jesus is Lord, even though they don't believe it or care about it, doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're saved. If you say Jesus is accursed, it doesn't mean that you're damned. Uh, what he's pointing out is, this is, through the Holy Spirit, this movement that God does upon the human heart, you'll know them by their fruits. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all these are fruits of the Spirit. But then we come to the second portion of the passage, and this is uh, where it says, there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but is the same God who works all in all. So these gifts that God speaks of, there's also administrations. Some people are teachers, some are pastors, some are administrators, some are evangelists. But there are specific gifts that the Spirit gives to every believer. So when you have given your heart to the Lord, and we've covered this, the three prepositions of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, in, with, and upon... Again, you have an empty cup of water, you have a pitcher full of water. This is the Holy Spirit, this is the human vessel. The Holy Spirit is with all mankind. He is the restrainer of evil. He brings conviction of sin. He's the one who speaks to you. He's like, you know, Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder. That's the Holy Spirit. He's with all mankind. And then when you say, Jesus, come into my life, and we, it's, it's, we're saved by grace through faith, it's a gift of God, and even that faith God gives us, it's, it's a gift of God, not of works. Nobody gets to boast because they're a believer. It's this idea of saying, you know what, I don't know where I'm going to get sacrificial blood to cover all of my sins. The, the temple sacrifices have been done away with. I don't know where the Messiah is going to come from because all of the records have been destroyed. Jesus has been proven to be from the, the, the line of David, both from his mother and his father. We have to somehow process who is he. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And, and the Holy Spirit is, is the Spirit of Christ and drawing all men to him. And you say, you know what, Lord, I receive you. So you're filled, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, the water comes in, that's, that's in. And the, the Greek preposition uh, with is para. So he's alongside parallel lines. He's alongside all mankind. He's in those who call upon his name. You're saved by grace through faith. 
And then we come to this preposition of, it's in the Greek, it's called epi, which means upon, where it's from your innermost being flows torrents of living water, baptism of the Holy Spirit. God used that term in this passage deliberately because when someone's baptized, what they're immersed in is what they get on people. When you're wet and you hug somebody after you're baptized, you get them wet. This is that idea that you are overflowing and satiating the world and it's living water. Living means flowing. All the great rivers of the world, the Ganges, the, 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 the Yangtze, the, the, the uh, Nile, the Mississippi, the Danube. It's moving water and every day millions and millions and millions of people go to this moving living water to have their thirst satiated. And that's what God is saying. You will be an instrument to satiate the spiritual thirst of those around you as my spirit comes upon you. And we talk about this. A baptism. God, would you baptize me in your spirit? Boom, one deal. And then you say, well, there's days where I feel empty and I'm not getting it on everybody. That's where you say, would you fill me? Uh, and, and, you, and we covered that. Why are you asking God to fill you? Well, because we leak, right? We leak. We're, we're broken vessels. And so as this water's coming upon us, overflowing, um, this diversity of gifts and the same spirit and it's this difference of ministries. But then it brings us to the passage that we're gonna look at this evening and it's real simple. It says, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So manifestation, this concept of the third person of the Trinity, God's Holy Spirit. Also, you can find this in the Old Testament and I'll show you examples of it shortly. The manifestation of it is you have a supernatural job to do. You're going to need supernatural power. Everywhere I was walking, my physical body was tired. My ability to comprehend the pain and the suffering that the families were going through, walking into a place that seemed odd to me, not knowing how I'm supposed to act, sitting with officials that you're not sure what you're supposed to say or not say, navigating these waters, I can tell you my constant prayer over the last two weeks is, God, would you fill me? Would you give me supernatural power to accomplish this supernatural task? Because I cannot, in this feeble mind of mine, figure out how to navigate these waters and to bring your hope and your comfort to the people that I'm around. And in addition, Lord, I'm physically tired, but by your spirit, would you fill me and give me a supernatural strength? In every case, he did that. As I'm sharing that with some of the families, they find the same strength in the midst of it. That this overflowing comes out, that you're able to give when, when seemingly there's nothing to give. How do you give from such tragedy? Well, it's an overflowing of the Spirit of God upon their life. If you have a problem with that, ask any of the folks that have lost some loved ones that have been pressing into the Lord and asking for this. It is nothing short of miraculous. I can't describe to you how I can go 60 hours without sleep and, and still find strength and clarity and, and to, to be able to respond. That's the Lord. This manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. For what purpose? For the profit of all. The problem is we want gifts for ourselves. We want the gift of prophecy or the gift of a word of knowledge so we can get tomorrow's lottery ticket numbers. Some people get gifts from the Lord and they start to use them for improper purposes. When you start getting some supernatural power, you like to use it for personal, good, for personal gain. The idea is not profit for you, but profit for all. You find the profit by pouring yourself out and God refills you. He wants you to be poured out. He wants you to be spent in that regard. And he fills you again. You're completely dependent upon him. You're relying on him. But the manifestation of the spirit, when you came to Christ... God's spirit is in you. He's in you. 
You're saved by grace through faith. Now, I'm good with that. I didn't want door number one or door number two. I was good with what God gave me. I'm saved. But in addition, he's saying to me, I want to give you power. I want to manifest myself so that when people look at you, they don't see you, Rob. They see me. I want the manifestation of my spirit upon your life for the profit of all because in your flesh, in you, dwells no good thing. And, and you can ask anyone who knows you well, whenever you're not abiding and, and being filled, you tend to show up and you're a little irritating or a lot irritating. God wants to manifest his spirit upon our lives. When we're left to our own devices, we run out. And, and I have to tell you, I sensed his presence and I was just sensing his spirit and having a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. Things were coming out of my mouth that were, somebody showed me an interview I did. I don't even remember the interview. I was so tired. Others saying that touched me so much and it was really, I don't remember it. I've had other times too where I walk up, I got this. And it's like Paul on Mars Hill in the area of Pegasus. He goes up and he starts laying out this really amazing discourse and this brilliance and not a single convert. Not one. And, and, I, and I've been there where I'm laying it out. Oh no, this is logical. And I just lose the whole thing because they just, it's those moments where you say something that they can't contend with and you don't even know where that came from. And, and this is that idea that he wants to manifest his spirit and it's given to each one for the profit of all. Now, some of you are gonna receive certain gifts. If some of you are, are deacons or ushers, God's gonna give you the gift of helps or the gift of administration. For teachers, uh, pastors, he's gonna give the gift of teaching, the gift of preaching. Uh, you know, there, for, for each of these callings, these stations in the body of Christ, there'll be a gifting that's gonna come in addition to it. And he says uh, in this passage, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, and to another the gift of healings by the same spirit. This word of wisdom um, and this word of knowledge. Word of wisdom is this idea that you're, you, you say something that baffles people and they look at you and they think, how did you, having graduated from Fresno State, come up with that? A lot of you know about Fresno State. And, and I literally majored in history because it's the only thing that the subjects made sense. History of China. When I wanted to do business, I didn't understand all the lingo of the, the subject matter. It didn't make sense to me. I, okay, a history. I know what history is. Studying the past. I can do that. And I picked it. It was almost like a twig on the banks of a mighty river. I just went with the flow. What was easiest? Least common denominator. But in the course of this, God uses all these things together for good. He takes this. He puts it together. He gives me ability. Even my procrastination, not having been a believer, I would wait till the very last minute before I'd study for a test. And today, I love the tension of procrastination because it gives them a message, kind of a fresh feel. And, and, and I, as I've studied Reagan and I've studied Newt Gingrich, they both use the same concept. Just telling you I'm in good company. <laughs> Reagan doesn't use it anymore. But Newt does. And, and, and with this word of wisdom, you come forward and you say something that just seems, I'll hear it from, from younger folks that, that don't have any degree. And they'll say something that God had shown them and you're, you're blown away by it. 
It's, it's, how, it's how to navigate in a very difficult situation. And I'm going to show you some examples in Scripture, the word of wisdom. But I also want to share with you this concept of a, uh, of a word of knowledge. Where someone comes up to you and says to you something that pertains directly to you. And there's no way that they would have known that. But yet they impart that to you. And you're looking at them going, why didn't God tell me that? How is it that you know that about my life? And I've seen this happen. People have used it in my life. And they've spoken into my life where there's no way they could possibly know. And God gave me a word of knowledge. I know it's shocking, but he did. He gave me a word of knowledge. I remember distinctly. Some of you recall the story. Um, I had gotten a letter around Christmas time from somebody in Hollywood who was commending a member of our congregation that was so giving and so thoughtful. It was one of the most beautiful letters I've ever read talking about how this person had blessed them and how they weren't a Christian, but the way that they want to consider Christ as a result of the way that they'd served them, and I was so touched by it. I mean, remarkable letter. It would be published all over the country. It was such a profound letter. I was touched by it, and the person that was outlined in the letter, I sent them um, meeting with two of the other pastors. We sent them a gift that Christmas to help with their family, knowing that they were giving, and we wanted to encourage them because they're a member of the fellowship, and we gave them a check. Christmas passed, I'm driving back in, it's after New Year's, we'd had a a fast. I wasn't a guy who would fast, but I waited on the Lord. As I'm driving in during this fast, God speaks to my heart and says, about this letter. And it was a word of knowledge. And God clearly said to me, that letter wasn't written by the person you think it was written by, it was written by the person that you sent the check to. They had written this letter to, to gain money for themselves. Yeah, welcome to the ministry. And I thought, Lord, this can't be. And again, the word of knowledge, it is. I called up the pastor that together we had decided to do this. And as I called him up, he answered the phone and he said, I said, I, I just had a word from the Lord. He goes, I did too. So-and-so wrote the letter? Yes. We were both stunned by it. Sure enough, when we confronted, we were right. And, and it was... We come to find out this person had multiple aliases. They were, they, this is their MO. They had done this for bad news. And you get duped because you think by your own mental faculties you have been moved and you've done the right thing. And God says, let me show you how people work. And he opens up this door. And that's a word of knowledge. Here's a picture of the word of knowledge. Do you guys know this story? Um... Jesus with the woman at the well, John chapter four. And, and he, he says to the woman at the well, he says, where's your husband? And she says, I have no husband. And, and Jesus says, you're right in saying you have no husband. And she didn't lie. She, she just didn't share everything. She's like, I'm not sure if I know you or trust you. And I don't really want to give you the backstory, but I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had one. You've been married and states out the number of times. And, and the one you're with isn't your husband. And that's a word of knowledge right there. It's like, where did you get that download? Did somebody give you a little, you know, memo before you came here to Samaria? It says, must needs go to Samaria. He bypassed everything to go to that well for that woman. And he has a word of knowledge by the Spirit to declare to her, it's right that you say you're not married. You've been married this many times and you're now living with a man who's not your husband. And she goes back to Samaria and says, this is a man who knew everything about my life. That's a word of knowledge. This idea of of um, a word of knowledge would be this one. 
You guys know the story in the book of Acts of Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of property. They come in to give the proceeds to all the disciples. And the disciples get a word of knowledge and they say, why is it that you have held back a portion of it saying that you've given all of it? And, and why would you lie to the Holy Spirit? And you can't lie to a force. The Holy Spirit's a person. And, and he's struck dead. His wife comes in seeing the body of her husband. I think that's the case. But, but comes in and says, look, you've got to get this right. Do you have anything you want to share with us? Oh, we've given you everything. Why is it that you would lie and you've held back a portion of it and then all of a sudden she's struck dead and they bury both of them? That's a word of knowledge. I've never had that power. I, I don't know that I necessarily want that and I don't want to see any of you dead. Amen? <laughs> okay, then don't hold anything back. <laughs> um, these, are, these are words of knowledge that nobody would specifically know. Another word of knowledge is where you find in Jeremiah 32, I believe it is, and this is one that my wife reminded me of as she was going through her study. In, in Jeremiah 32, God tells Jeremiah to go buy a field, um, and, and they're in exile, and, and they're going to be sent into exile, and, he's, and Jeremiah says, you know, God tells him, go, and the man wants to sell the field. He doesn't necessarily know why, but he goes forward. He's still struggling with it. And then all of a sudden, he declares to him, I want to sell the field. And it's there that Jeremiah not only gets a word of knowledge, but he gets a word of wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge for good. And he, he finally gets, I'm buying it because the property is going to be restored. God has declared that. And this is a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom that God gives him in this, this, por- this portion. If you're struggling with what wisdom is as pertained to knowledge, here is the gift of wisdom. And this is the story of Jesus when he is told, he, they come up and they want to trap him. And they say, um, is it lawful to give to Caesar taxes? Remember this? And everyone's going, oh, we got him now. And the Pharisees got him all trapped. Is it lawful to give uh, taxes or to pay taxes? And everyone's going, well, if you pay taxes, you're not part of, you know, uh, you're, you're supporting the oppressor. And, and if, you, if, if you don't give taxes, then the, the, the Romans are going to beat on him. And, and how's he going to answer this one? He's trapped now. And Jesus, with a word of wisdom, says, can somebody please give me a coin? And he reaches in their pocket. I got a coin. And he holds it up. And this is wisdom. It, it's to give an answer that just shuts everyone down. It is, it's, it's so profound. And I've experienced this in my life where I don't know where the words came from, but it just ends the debate. He holds up the coin. He says, whose inscription's on this? And they say, Caesar's. He says, good. Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Flicks it out there. I envisioned that. <laughs> what he's saying is, this is man's system. You're going to pay taxes underneath this system. But what image? Where's God's image? Well, we go all the way to Genesis, and he invoked that through wisdom. We've been created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb. Let us make man in our own image. And you're looking at humanity, and you're to render unto God what is God's. What is that? Humanity. A government seeks to oppress, God seeks to set free. An oligarchy, a monarchy, this idea of oppressing mankind, and God says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He divides it immediately and people are baffled. That's wisdom. Here is, um, in the passage of scripture, uh, this idea of a diversity of gifts, but it also goes on 
to say not only the word of knowledge through the same spirit, verse nine says to another faith by the same spirit and to another the gift of healings by the same spirit. So faith and healings, the one I picked up was out of Acts chapter three. This is a cool one. This one picks them both up. Uh, Peter walks up to this guy who's begging alms and he's got his hand out and he says, please, sir, help me. And Peter walks up to him, and the guy's thinking, score, this guy's a sucker, he's a Christian, they always give money. And as he's, he's walking up to him, and, and he's got his hand out, and Peter says, he says this, probably just bum the guy out, Peter said, silver and gold, have I none? And the guy's like, then would you move, because everyone's coming through, and I don't need you blocking the way. But he says, silver and gold, have I none? And here comes the faith part and the healings part. Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The scripture says he reached down, grabbed the guy's hand, and lifted him. That's the gift of healings and the gift of faith. I'll tell you why. I could say to that guy, and I'm I'm candid with you, and some of you think I don't have this gift, and that's fine. I've got certain other ones. Faith is not necessarily one of them in some respects, although Pastor Tony would probably contend that I do because he deals with the money and every time he comes to me we're struggling I'm like that don't worry about it (laughs) and Tony what happens every time I say don't worry about it what what are you awake I'm sorry it shows up up. this the last two weeks were awful I mean awful and Tony's like this is I ah and the last two days, boom, 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 out of nowhere. We had a check come in from uh, Texas. We had a check come in from out of nowhere. And it wasn't Texas of people who bought this place. It, people you don't know or never met. And, and uh, somebody else in the congregation sent something. It all just comes at the right moment. And that's how the Lord does it. So gift of faith, I, I don't necessarily know that that's a gift of faith as much as I've just come to realize it, it really isn't worth worrying about because I can't control the income. I can only control the expenses. If I can start controlling the income, find a new church because I'm guilting you. Amen? Amen? Yeah, and if you want a thermometer to give, go somewhere else. I'm not gonna do it. If you want a plaque, go to a dentist's office because you have plaque disease. But we can't control expenses and there's times where we look at it and we say, okay, things are tight. What do we need to do? And we're really good about cutting the expenses. But it's fascinating. Sometimes God says, no, don't cut those. It's gonna come through and we wait and it always does. So the gift of faith, imagine this faith. You're walking up to a guy in the busiest cardio and that's the word in Latin for the main artery where everyone's walking and everyone's looking at you because you're marked men and they want you dead and they know who the disciples are. They know who the apostles are. They walk up to this man. They've got an entourage following them. Peter says, silver and gold have I none. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he doesn't just say rise up and walk. He grabs his arm and lifts him. So two things are being employed there. One is the gift of faith. Because you have better have heard from the Lord and you better know that you know that you know that what you're about to do is of God. And secondly, that you have this gift that God has said he's going to be healed and you're not gonna do it, but by your action touching him, this is gonna happen. Honestly, 
I, I've never heard God say that, although I've seen the gift of healings before as I've prayed for people and God's done some neat things, but it's in spite of my unbelief, God's done that. Okay? I'd like to say that I'd know how to go up and blow on somebody. I don't. But, but in this case, if, if it were me, I think, honestly, I'd grab their arm and I'd drag them across the floor. And everybody would be giggling and I'd be embarrassed and the man would be, why are you hurting my knees and scraping them? But Peter grabs him and lifts him and he begins to leap and dance and praise God. Healed. Faith. Right there. These are scriptural pictures of what God can do. This gift of faith, this gift of healings. You can also add in relation to it, uh, this, the, the other, other verses. I've got four minutes, let me do this. Uh, to another is the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another discerning of spirits. To another different kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So you're saying, I want the gift of teaching. I want the gift of preaching. I want the gift of faith. I want the gift of healings. I want the gift of knowledge. I want the gift of wisdom. He's gonna give you whatever he wants to give you for whatever it is he wants to do. But I do know this, whatever he gives you is for one purpose, for the benefit of all, right? It's, it edify. Edify means to build up. Edifice, the, the, the building itself, it's to build up. The working of miracles, I mean, there's, there's been some folks that have this gift. And, and uh, I'll give you one person in particular that had the gift of miracles. Uh, George Mueller of Bristol. I, I've never read an account more profound than George Mueller of Bristol with the exception of uh, Corey Ten Boom, maybe. But George Mueller of Bristol would keep an orphanage running in Bristol, England, today's equivalent of a $10 million annual budget, and he would do it without receiving annual gifts. He wouldn't take endowments. He wouldn't take, he would just wait for the provision. There would be no food in the cupboard. He would have all the children set out their plates. He would have all the workers set out their plates. They would gather in this upper room. They show it to this day. It would be a circle. They would sit down. They begin to thank God for the food that he's about to provide. He had copious journals that he would write these down. You can read them. If you ever want to read a story, that'll blow your mind. George Mueller of Bristol by A.T. Pearson. And they would sit there and they would pray. They would have the table set. They would thank God. They'd have all the children come sit at the seat. And all of a sudden, and there'd be a knock at the door. George Miller Bristol would open this up. There'd be a man saying, my cart just broke down. The wagon wheel just came off. All this milk and the bread is going to go stale and, and turn. Does the orphanage need it? Oh, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> Thanks, my wheel cart's broken. Well, we'll help you fix it, but they'd bring it in, they'd feed all the children. Time after time after time after time, copious, over 50 journals, clearly depicting miracle after miracle after miracle. This is a man that operated by faith. When he died, he had his coat and two silver spoons to his name. That was it. He lived by faith. He lived through miracles, this idea of prophecy that you're speaking God's word, that it's going to have something profound in its future application. It's speaking God's word with conviction. I can go further with it, but it's also being able to say, this is what will happen in time if this isn't applied. Um, I'm limited on time, so I'll go through it a little bit more. Um, but look at, um, this is the discerning of spirits. Uh, take a look at Acts 16, I'll read it to you. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, this is the Apostle Paul, a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us 
who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us, Luke is writing this, and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And you're thinking, how's she demon possessed saying that? And everywhere they go, this, th- these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim the way of salvation. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim the way of salvation. I have been at church services where what they're saying is completely accurate and the timing of it couldn't be more wrong. I sat through a service of one of the victims. And I won't say which one, but the minister, everything they said was right. The timing was completely wrong. The whole room was grieved. This, this discernment of spirits, this idea of what it's about, does it, and, and at this moment when this woman is declaring it, what she's saying is right. How she's saying it just isn't resonating. And this is the conclusion that Paul says, and this she did for many days, but Paul greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. That's a discerning of spirits. It seems like what she's saying is correct, but there's something odd here. It doesn't take long to be able to discern something if God is giving you that insight. I know one of the things that we have here is different kinds of tongues into another, the interpretation of tongues. Uh, This is that portion of the scripture and uh, we've got no time left. Um, What does the Bible say about speaking in tongues? And so what we're gonna do with that is look at that, one minute, boom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, for the gifts that you want to manifest to each and every one of us, and we're not to be ignorant of them. And God, as we have come to understand how you want to manifest yourself in and through us so that the world would see you and not us, we're grateful for the supernatural gifts, for the supernatural task. But we need to abide in you. We need to be filled by you, and we need to to not be ignorant. And we, we need to long for these spiritual gifts. And You just say that we can ask for them and you give freely to those who ask. And so, Lord, especially in a community that desperately needs a touch, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, a discerning of spirits, just this idea of faith uh, to impart to folks that have just lost theirs and to be able to look and say, how is it that you can believe God in the midst of all this? And, And this idea to say, how could you not believe in God in the midst of all this? To be able to have a word in season and out of season that would be this gift of wisdom. Lord, please, there, there are folks in here, including myself, we're just asking you right now, would you grant us these gifts for your greater glory, for the benefit of all, that we would be used to minister to our community. Thank you, God, for this Thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for our families. We're mindful of those that are hurting. And collectively, as the body of Christ, we intercede on their behalf. We pray that you'd bring them comfort. Holy Spirit, come alongside them. Paraclete, the one who brings comfort, would you bless them in the absence of their loved one at the table, but they would just sense your peace that would surpass all understanding, guarding their heart and their mind in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we commit all this to you. We thank you that you're a good God. You're faithful. There's a lot we don't understand, but we trust you because there are things we do know that you do work all things together for good. How, when, where, that's up to you, Lord. Your timing is perfect. And we trust you and we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.